Hi, my name's Elijah. I welcome to my podcast, Songwriting for Songwriters. Today, my special guest is Mark Nevin. Singer-songwriter and guitarist Mark came to prominence alongside Eddie Reader in Fairground Attraction in the 1980s, writing the band's number one hit, Perfect. He went on to write songs with Morrissey, Ringo Starr and many more acts, as well as establishing his own solo career. We speak about how Perfect came to be a number one record and the early days of Fairground Attraction, Mark's desire to prove a palm reader wrong, his upbringing, his faith and his songwriting process. So please enjoy this podcast, subscribe, and thank you for being here. Welcome to my podcast, Songwriting for Songwriters. Today, my special guest is Mark Nevin. How are you doing, Mark? Mm. Good. That was quick. I was having a glass of water then as you asked me that question. I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. Thank you for being on the on the podcast. I've, I've been uh, looking around and listening to um, lots of your music over the last few days, and something that I came across on twitter i think yesterday was it's about i think for my maths which isn't a strong point it's 35 years since um the first of a million kisses came out is uh, this yeah, may exactly. i think yeah I think this week i think actually yeah that's right yeah. quite a um remarkable uh thing to look back upon I, I guess that time of your life and that the success of it and you know how what do you feel about it now looking back from from this uh vantage point in time well, it's it's uh, surreal, really. What's made it more surreal is the fact that the the four members of Fairground Attraction, Simon, Roy, Eddie, and myself, actually met up for the first time in, in over thirty years. Yesterday, oh, wow. the day before yesterday. Wow! <laughs> so that was really kind of not be- not because uh, it was an anniversary; it just was a coincidence. It happened to be, um, but it was um, it was great to see them all and uh, be together and chat. And uh, it's, it was it's like a dream, really. So long ago, and it's also strange, you know. Yeah, yeah. But what I think, I mean, if you've, if anyone's ever been in a band, that that feeling of going through something like that together, you know, it's time in the trenches, isn't it, with a band? You good or bad? There's ups and downs of being in a band, but you go through something as a group of people and and I imagine in, in your case where it's such an extraordinary success that it's it's a big thing to go through and you and you all have wives and girlfriends and children but that particular band dynamic is a quite a rare thing isn't it to to have in your life it was huge yeah it was it was such an important part of all of our lives and uh, tr- tr- it changed our lives completely there's a real before and after experience sure. uh, in so many ways and it was heaven and hell, really. At the sort of best bits, it was kind of beyond your wildest dreams, and and at the worst bit, it was beyond your wildest dreams as well, really. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. So, but but before Fairground Attraction, that you were already a songwriter, right? You'd already made the decision to kind of make that your uh, your life before you joined the band. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was that. That was what I was going to do. It's like I I, I look back now. Um, I, when was when did I decide that that's what I did? I suppose it was, I think it was when I was in at school and 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 I was uh, we were in the English class and uh, we did you know comprehension when you have to sort of you give the, the answer in the question in the answer so you know so what is a load of peas a load of peas is right green things you know whatever it is and I did this and I, and nobody else in the class did you know, understood the concept of comprehension and then the teacher said. Oh, Mark's got it. I thought, this is, I'm the best at this. I'm the best at writing things that people understand. This must be what I do. Oh, cool. Uh, I think that I look back now, there's little moments like that. It kind of like give you a kind of, oh, it's something that I am the finest at. And, and so I think something as little as that was probably put me on the on the way. And then I saw David Bowie on, on uh, Lift Off with Asia, which was a kids TV program uh, on ITV. And I was about 13 years old and, um, I just I didn't know what hit me. He was singing Starman with Mick Ronson. He, you know, he, he's afraid he'll blow our mind. And I think, well, he, he did blow my mind. And I know lots of other people from my generation when it, when they saw that. And I thought, oh, this is what I this is what I do. Whatever that guy's doing, it's kind of what I do. I didn't have to find out what he did. It's writing songs. I thought, oh, I see. And, uh, and I got a guitar for a fiver. And um, Mr. Hargraves was my English uh, math teacher. Up from up north somewhere, I can't remember, like real northern accent. Like he gave me, he gave me the chords to Ray Vaughan by Buddy Holly. Wow! Brilliant. And um, 
And so I learned to play C and F and Buddy Holly Rave on. And um and then I just started writing songs. Do you remember your first song? Oh, it's terrible, yeah. It's called uh I wish I had an orchestra, it was called. Was it? Brilliant. That's, yeah. a, good... <laughs> That's a brilliant title for a first song. I love that. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, mine was called Land of Hope and Glory, which was very generic uh, well. derogatory. <laughs> yeah. I can still play it from time to time. So yeah. did you grow up in a musical household then? Was that with your parents and musical? No, people? not really. Not at all. There was no musical instruments, nothing like that. It was um, my dad was you know Welsh and he loved to sing in church and singing in church was my dad's thing. That, right. uh, you know, And he loved to sort of. Mario Lanza and Judy Garland and all these sort of singers of those those so we'd on a Sunday would be kind of like my dad impersonating Mario Lanza and things, <laughs> but they were great storytellers. My mum and dad always told great stories, and I loved stories. And also, my mum used to read me the parables in the Bible. Okay, and I loved I loved the parables because they had a sort of you know they had a meaning to them you know and you come and it gives you this really nice sort of taste in your mouth when you know oh, yeah. i see it means this yeah and so i love songs that that have got a meaning to them you yeah. know i can't stand some vacuous nonsense in it well who can is you know who does yeah. well lots of people do i suppose <laughs> anyway <laughs> that's the trouble but um you know i like songs that give you a kind of oh i see it's like this it's like that mm. and i'm sure that comes from like that sort of parable that's really fascinating, actually, that as a background. So, yeah, because I suppose you always, in those parables, you kind of find yourself in them, don't you, as well? As you know, you, you hear the story, but you also are questioning your own choices or what you would do or your conscience and things. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to, to bring into songwriting that as well. Absolutely. My mum used to, if we watch a film, at the end of the film, my mum would say, what, what was that about then? What what what's the moral of the story? You know, she'd ask us, and and so I always reflect on the moral of a story and what was right and what was wrong. And that's know, a great and, thing for your mum to do that to be to, to be um you know curious enough to inquire about what you thought and you know dig into what you you know your reactions to. It. I love that. Yeah, she almost, was it's almost like an art college parenting style. <laughs> like... Well, she she was she was nothing like an art college uh, type of person, but uh, that you know. We we I'm one of eight kids and oh, wow. we you know it was very Catholic religious family we went to church every weekend but always went to sort of Catholic schools with nuns and priests and so so much of my musical influence really comes from that yeah, yeah. sure there's something about um when we were kids you know we'd always singing in assembly singing hymns in assembly which I'm not sure if it goes on anymore but it was something you, I didn't. You know, some of the kids hated doing, but I always loved the kind of sound of us all singing hymns in the yeah. assembly. It's quite a lovely thing to do. Like we had to do it every morning, and that that was yeah a great thing to do as a kid. I think you know to access to just the sound of singing. You know, absolutely. No, it's lovely. I, I loved all that, and you know, yeah, it's interesting because I, I was sent to my wife uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago about um. You, you know, when I first started playing guitar, I was in church. We, It was in the 60s. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church changed with Vatican II, and they, they tried to modernize it and bring in folk music into the church, which was oh, wow. pretty naff. So, like okay. Kumbaya and all these, of Michael Rose, the boat ashore and all things like this. And so me and my brother would play guitars in the church, and that's when we first started playing. Right. And, um, and I said to my wife, I said, you know what, it's really interesting. I um I realised it wasn't for the the bringing in of what was called folk mass. Yeah, I don't think I ever would have done what I did. It was kind of like that playing in church, folk mass was the kind of thing that got me started. And, and by sort of weird coincidence, whatever you want to call, we then realised that the church we live right next to a church called Saint Augustine's Church. Yeah. It, anyway, in the sixties, they had this huge first folk mass from this church that was broadcast on the bbc wow. and there was like a cast of thousands playing this pretty bizarre kind of modern version of sort of things that our father played with like funky soul <laughs> folk flutes 
Amazing. And uh, it, it's it's actually on YouTube. If you look oh, at it, the cool. folk yeah. mass at St. Augustine's Church. Wow. And it was broadcast live. And I thought, well, that's just surreal. Like, you know, that I was just saying about folk mass. And it hadn't really sort of entered my mind for decades. Mm. And suddenly I realized we live in the shadow of the church, which was, was its birthplace. It was kind of quite surreal. That's fantastic. I love that kind of stuff. And you're right, the small things sometimes, not this is not a small thing, but, you know, a, a kind of uh, coincidental or something which happens as a result of someone else, like the folk mass thing, how how important that is in lots of people's lives as songwriters, how little things can mean you pick up a guitar. I remember for me, the music teacher in year seven said, oh, he wants to play guitar. And my dad had always been a songwriter. And part of me was thinking, no, I can't be, I can't be bothered because he, he plays it and, um, you know, I'll do something else. And my hand went up without me... Um, kind of wanting it to <laughs> it's like an involuntary and so then i ended up kind of playing guitar yeah. you know so it's strange little things like that yeah. so when you made the decision though to kind of um start writing songs was that it for you was that your was that your kind of that's what i want to do in life that's my music is my thing did anything else come up as a career choice or were you very certain no, about uh, no that was definitely it then i just me and my brother martin we we were just sat in our bedroom playing the guitars and uh, he was Martin Nevin and I was Mark Nevin. So we had both M Nevin. So I then added the E to differentiate myself from him. So yeah. I became Mark E Nevin. Right. And actually years later, Mark E Smith of the, of the, of the fall said, <laughs> that Mark E Nevin from Fairground Tracks has nicked my E. <laughs> I said, no, I haven't actually Mark E Smith. I had my E since I was about 13. It was just one of those things. But so anyway, we used to play guitars. And then when I was 15, I left school. I'm straight out of here. Right. Couldn't stand at school. And I went to um, to my careers officer. And uh, he says, wait, Mark, what are you going to do then? This is Bristol. He says, what are you going to do for a career? I says, oh, I'm going to be a songwriter. (laughs) Right. He says, why not just be an astronaut? Like... (laughs) You know, because like around our village, which was all sort of farming and rural, there there were no songwriters except for the um, the tuba player from the Wurzels lived on the whole road. That's amazing. That the only bit of glamour we had. Brilliant. And um, I said, "No, I want to be a songwriter." He said, "Oh, let's well, have a look at your 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 exam work." Like, oh, I said, "You've got like an old level in art and a CSE in woodwork." Hmm. Right. Ah. He says. He says, I think you'd be best to, to suit to some kind of uh, some kind of uh, factory work. And of course, where we li- we lived, it was right next to Cadbury's fat chocolate factory. Okay, right, right, right. And uh, so it would have meant that would have meant there. And I says, oh, I'm not working at Cadbury's. And and if actually on my, I've got a song called Curly Whirly Boy, which is all about Brilliant. how they told me I would never. <laughs> mount to anything i should be a curly whirly boy wow, <laughs> making chocolate covered toffee that everybody loves well i ain't gonna i ain't gonna and <laughs> so i didn't ever work at cadbury's chocolate factory and i got my guitar and i actually got a job in a guitar shop where i got to play lots of guitars and then when i was 18 i came to london okay but i played i played in bands with my brother we just sort of cover yeah. bands you know? yeah so how did you go from moving to London and guitar shop into working as a songwriter at, at that point? Well, the first thing I did when I came to London was London was join the Moonies, like a religious cult. Really? Uh, was, wow. Yeah, that was really because I think, you know, coming from a big family, yeah, uh, you know, there's 10 of us around dinner table every night. You kind of right. like miss everybody. And so yeah, of course. So I find a sort of religious cult family. They called themselves the family. And that was pretty traumatic because it coincided perfectly with the Jonestown massacre. In, oh, Christ. You know, and so it was on the front page. <laughs> like wow. Thousands of people kill themselves in mass suicide in yeah. cults. It's like, oh, my, oh, I've joined a cult. It's like, ah! Because <laughs> you know, like, I didn't call it a cult, but it no. was. Um, so anyway, I sort of, stayed, you know, once I finally got out of that, it was a very traumatic experience and it was kind yeah. of hard to escape. Yeah. Literally, it was a chase down the streets and all that sort of thing. Wow. And um, I, I left London then. I went on sort of like hitching around Europe with my girlfriend, my first girlfriend. And I came back to London and I got another job in a guitar shop. And I just started writing songs and had a band with some of my mates who were up from Bristol as well. And kept doing that. And and I, and I didn't really know where it was going to go because like the mu- music was going in a way that was really not like I I didn't really it was going sort of 
increasingly electronic right. and yes. indie yeah. and stuff. And then I would been I'd sort of learned jazz chords and things yeah. that weren't very very fashionable at all. Okay. Really wondered wondered what I was going to do. I was in different little bands and stuff, and then I went hitching around America. And before I, I left, I discovered this author called William Sarayan. Right. Uh, he's an Armenian. Well, it's from, he was born in, in Fresno in California near San Francisco, but of Armenian descent. And he wrote all these little short stories. One of them, the famous one, was called The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze, which was the name of his first collection of short stories. And I loved these little stories, and they were very much like parables. Okay. Yeah, they, they were little short stories with a kind of um, big beginning, middle, and the end, and a kind of gooey feeling inside. And um, and I thought, oh, maybe I should write stories instead, you know, because I'd realize that, and I'd try to write stories. No, you know, but I just thought, well, you know, the thing is with a song, you just you play A minor and it's sort of like two pages of prose, you know, it's yeah, kind of yeah. like it's, it's raining. Uh, you know what I mean and so but then I started to think but I want to write songs that are like these stories and so I start I started to for, form this sort of idea of the almost like poetry but with music but it wasn't poetry it was songs yeah but with a very sort of little vignettes with stories to them and it was a thing that I that I was doing and I wanted to somehow make this into a recording but i didn't really know how to do that and then and by then i'd met eddie reader from yeah, right. and yeah and before and she was a set she was such she was singing with the rhythmics and alison moy as a back and singer of people um she wanted to be a solo singer she didn't want to obviously just carry on being a backing singer and i had these songs um uh Anyway, but it was completely, it was so unfashionable. I mean, it was so like, I never expected to it to take off any more than in some little, just a little indie weird thing that I do for myself, really. Yeah. And um, and she wrote to me, I, I've gone back to America. I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in America. And she wrote to me, oh, you could you could write songs. You're the person who could write songs. To me. And, I, and she's like, so, such a fantastic singer. Yeah. And I came back and I went to her little prefab. She had a prefab in... Uh, in Walnut Tree Walk in Lambeth, it's right right where Char Charlie Chapman was from around there. So it's a little wow. pre like wartime prefab. And I said, I've got these songs, you know. I said, I want to form a group and 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 do these songs. And I, one of them was called Fairground Attraction, and they were like that sort of two and a half minutes, three minutes long with a sort of story to them. She's going, oh, great, I want these songs. I want to be a solo singer. I want you, to, you know, I want to, you to give me the songs. I said, oh, no, I'm not giving the songs to anyone. I want I want you to sing the songs in my band. Okay. Oh, no, no, I want you to give the songs to me. For my... And this was the kind of fight that we had. Right. And it was yeah. like uh, we were both adamant that we were going to, one of us was going to win. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's quite heated. Uh, and, uh, you know, eventually we we had... Um, she was still singing backing vocals with Alice Samoy at the time, and and one day we went to uh, to uh, what I call Kite Flyers Hill, which is Parliament Hill in Hampstead yeah. Heath. Yeah, and she was just about to go away on some big American tour with Alison, and uh, she said, oh, "If you take the songs around, because by then we'd done it from all sort of port studio recordings and things to record companies, um, maybe we'll maybe we could be a band." It was okay. in the sort of vague kind of where. I went okay, and once so while she was away, I took the tapes around to different record companies. Literally, in those days you'd go in with a cassette, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, play them. And then we got offered three different record deals. Fantastic! So when she came by, I said, "We got, you know, we got these record deals. We got to." Wow. And and um, oh, but um, I missed out a lot of stuff about the whole thing with fair with fortune telling was a big part. Oh, of go on, tell us, yeah, tell us the fortune telling thing. I'm into a bit of esoteric. Uh, well, what happened was my mum was into a fortune telling thing and she used to sort of really believe in it all, the palm readers and clairvoyance and stuff like that. And so I was always very wary of going anywhere near anything like that. Okay. And um, she said, uh, anyway, I had this girlfriend for a while, Jane, Jane Eyre, actually the band called Jane Eyre and the Belvedis, they were signed to Stiff Records. Right. And um, she was really into this stuff and she said oh, let's do this palm reading thing i was like, oh no no and eventually she managed to convince me and she had this woman called audrey came around 
<laughs> Audrey read our palms and she read one. She said to me, Oh, you're never gonna you're never gonna achieve what you want. You're never gonna be a songwriter. This is not gonna happen. It's just right. exactly my worst nightmare, you know, literally. <laughs> I mean, what? No, no, it's not. It's, it's, it. And then she said, you did Jane's hand and she said, Oh, oh, you're really gonna because Jane was a singer, you, you you're gonna it's really gonna happen for you, you know. You got you're gonna meet somebody you're gonna work work with and having a, a relationship with. I thought, oh, great, I'm gonna lose my girlfriend and my like sort of career dreams in one palm rinse. So right. I was like devastated by this. And so Anyway, I got to the anyway, this palm reader said it's not because you haven't got the talent, it's because just before you get anywhere, somebody else is gonna ruin it for you. Oh, it's even worse. It's like <laughs> it's, it's like, well, you know, I'm paying for this. <clears throat> anyway, so I got really got quite ill because I believed it all. And I went to live in Akron, Ohio, where Jane was from, which wow. is the rubber the okay. rubber capital of yeah. of, of of America, where Dunlop and Goodyear tires are from. Wow. And I worked in the garden of the guy who, who was the CEO of Goodyear tires. I worked in as his gardener. Right. And um, he liked having me because the CEO of Goodyear, of Dunlop tires was his surname was Nevin. And he thought it was really funny. <laughs> what a joke. I've got someone with my, my rival's surname doing my gardening. Okay. Extra yeah. humiliation sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I and I and I got to the point where I thought, well, I've got to prove this wrong. I've got right. to prove it all wrong because I got I started believed it so much because sure, my sure. mum had always believed it so much. Okay. You know, it was like if if a palm reader told it something to you, it was going to happen. That's what I had been brought up to believe. Right. So it's like it's like God coming down and telling me this yeah. was a fact when, yeah, I, yeah, when yeah. I heard it. So I thought I just got to prove this wrong. And anyway, I went back to London and I broke up with Jane. And I went back to London and I lived in a place in Fordwich Road in Cricklewood. It was a squat. And um, I used to call this place the Academy of Fine Popular Music <laughs> because I, 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 I decided it was where I was going to sort of master my craft. I love that. That's great. <laughs> and <clears throat> I started to write these songs. I was writing these sort of funny songs. I was writing songs a bit like Dusty Springfield. And I was, oh, I loved the sort of Dusty Springfield 60s records. And I was trying to, we did this, the first record I made with Eddie was this sort of song where we did these two dusty Springfield type ballads on, and we were called the Academy of Fine Popular Music. That was the name. Brilliant. And it wasn't until years later, like 30 years later, I found out that 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 that, that squat, the Academy of Fine Popular Music in Fordwich Road, was opposite the house that Dusty Springfield was born Jesus. in. Wow, man. Love yeah. that. That's amazing. Mad, That's crazy. And so... Anyway, Eddie and me had this argument, and I got this got this uh, three, three labels: Phonogram, BMG, and Ireland. All wanted to sign us, and um, Phonogram said, "We just want to see you play live once, and then we'll sign you." So I said to Eddie, "She just got back from this Japanese tour or something," and I said, "Look, we've got to do this gig straight away, and um, it's like to tomorrow because they'll sign us on Wednesday if we can just show them we can play live." Oh, so I had to get a gig. So I'm going on holiday. I said, well, you can't just, can you just wait an extra day? Um, uh, so, all right, one more day. So I got managed to get a gig at a place called the New Merlin's Cave in King's Cross. And Dave Bates, who was the head of Phonogram Records, came down and he walked in. There was like no gear on the stage. And he said, well, I thought you were playing. Yeah, we are in a minute. He said, where's the gear? I said, we haven't got any gear. And we got up, it was just Eddie singing, me playing the acoustic guitar, Simon Edwards playing that strange Mexican acoustic bass, and Roy Dodds with a sort of tiny little snare and brush. And we just played a set all the way. There's all the songs that are, you know, by then learned. Fantastic. It's exactly like the Fairground Traction record. Yeah, yeah. No, not even a microphone, never mind any effects. And it was just like, wow, so we're signing tomorrow. Oh, amazing. Love that. <laughs> But you see, one of the things was, you see, I, I thought I, this thing in my head, just at the last minute, somebody will ruin it for you, you see? Yeah. And yeah. I thought, ah, you see, well, that would be a manager or a producer. I thought, right, no managers, no producers, because they'll ruin it. So I mm. said to them, I, I said, you know, anything is that we, I want to produce the record. We don't want any producers. And this is a, in the 80s when it was all about producers, sure. you know. Yeah. It was like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, all right then. And just before we signed, the A&R guy made some sort, of, some sort of remark about a certain producer he thought might be good to do it. I thought, he's going to go back on his promise about the produ producer. 
Right. So I went to RCA, which was my preferred choice because David Bowie, my who you know, and was on had been on on RCA, and I said to them, "Look, we're going to sign with Phonogram tomorrow," and uh, it was a Friday, it was a Thursday night. It was actually, and I said, um, "But I said to them, we don't want producers, and I think they're going to go back on their promise because uh, they've made this suggestion about its producer. If you can, so you know, say, promise us." that we definitely won't have a producer. We'll sign with you instead. And they went, okay. So come Friday morning, phonogram were there with a, with cameras and champagne, and we just didn't turn up. Wow. Uh, and it, it's, it's really quite frightening for me because I really ate this thing. So at the yeah. last minute, someone's going to ruin it. It was yeah. in my head. And we, I, I was in a nervous breakdown state all day. Christ. And I said, we've got to sign it today, though. We've got to sign a deal today. So they managed to get all the contracts ready, and we signed it. This, And I was like, <laughs> just tears in my eyes when we signed that deal. Wow, man. That's yeah. quite and I, and I remember we ran out of there. Eddie and me ran out of there. It was... <laughs> this is a very short, condensed version. It's, it gets even weirder if I went into it long term. But we, we, and we ran out. There. I remember coming down Bedford Avenue in it, down by Tottenham Court Road there, and it's torrential rain. Eddie and me, it was just a magic night. And I remember ringing up my mum and dad in the phone box, but not long before mobiles, you know, and the phone box would have rang and we just signed a record deal with RCA Records, you know, £75,000, which in 1988, 87 was an awful lot of money. And it was yeah. just like to my parents, it's like, really? Seriously? <laughs> yes, seriously, you know? Wow, man. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So when you, uh, yeah, that's quite, it's blown my mind a bit, that with the um, palm reader. That's quite, so So we managed to avoid the palm reader's prediction anyway. We swerved off the kind of person who was going to possibly muck it up for you. Did any, did any more esoteric or palm reading moments uh, come true on the climb to uh, success? Well, come true. Well, no, I completely, completely proved it wrong because it's well a little done. rubbish. And I, I like, you know, and I, I, I became very interested in it. Or I, I could, you know, we, I remember when we won the when we, you know, of course we did the record. I had no producer. We just produced ourselves um, with Kevin Maloney, engineer, sort of, you know, just keeping us in tune and stuff. And then we um, record came out perfect. Came out went to number one. It was just I mean, like, wow, that was. That's amazing to be to, at that age as well when you when you're kind of not in the industry because it's quite a scary thing. But to be, um, to be certain in that way to say something like I want to produce the album, it's a brave and bold thing to do as a young man, isn't it? To to make that to to risk the possible kind of industry, you know, A and R people who think they know best, but to actually go on your own instinct and make that a uh, a, a, a sort of definite thing you need is a brave move. Well, it was, yeah, it is in a way. But I, I mean, I don't like to sort of brag about it because it was more kind of like an absolute focus. This, this, this deter, you know, it was a, it was yeah. in reaction to this thing. And yeah, it was like, yeah. So it was, it was brave, and it, but it was sort of you know, also young and stupid. It was also stupid in a way. But um, I, you know, I just knew what I wanted it to be like, which was the like these stories by William Sarian. Yeah. Just little kind of um, yeah. vignettes with little stories, begin like the like the parables. Just little beginning, middle, and end give you a gooey feeling, yeah, and like that. with with no production, I don't want any any production. Just, it it made him vulgar, kind of like we're trying. Yeah, and I so I wanted the 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 music to be so minimal, like like a sort of shaker wood frame. Yeah. around a story you know whether you didn't even notice the instrumentation in yeah. a way yeah. and so ed and eddie's voice was so beautiful uh and and she would just sing the words almost like a, a musical poem in this tiny wooden frame of a uh, minimalistic sort of accompaniment and anything else would have been vulgar sort of uh to... you know it's really interesting to talk about that because it's it's quite a, something i think about sometimes or overthink about with different songwriters but what you've described there is kind of like, you know, the author that you were talking about and the, the you know, want to keep things simple and in a frame. Sometimes it's interesting to hear songwriters talk about their influences and their feelings about how they wanted things to be, because you can really hear it in the songs. And often I think people think that, you know, a song comes along, you write it, but actually it just goes to show you the kind of taste decisions and the things that floated into your mind as you're growing up and as you're kind of becoming a musician, how important those little things are and how important they shape your kind of songwriting world world view if you like totally yeah 
and it was, and it was all about purity and truth i was yeah. you know i was on a quest to find truth you know in a you know sort of religious way you know from i'm from a very religious family and you know having come out of the moonies which would really blew my mind in terms of my religious faith and it really mm. tested me and um wanted to find beauty and, uh, and in his William Sarayan stories, I, I found that I, I actually ended up going to his house and wow. he was long dead, but, you know, uh, you know, sort of where he'd written his poems and books. And and um, I read that actually about everything he ever wrote. And that was a big influence. And I just wanted to create it so pure. And yeah. Eddie's voice was the perfect voice because her singing was so pure. Yeah. And her soul, she was such a sort of, we were very similar. We were two weeks born apart. Right, she's from a family of seven. I'm from from a family of eight. Both sort yeah. of really sort of big Catholic things, and so we we resonate with each other almost like siblings, really, yeah. like brother and sister. Which yeah. unlike brother and sister, we rubbed rub it uh, uh, the wrong way as well, and in the negative, but in the positive, it was just something so absolutely natural between us. Fantastic. And Rob Dickens, the head of Warner Brothers, once said to me. Something happens to her voice when she sings your songs, and something happens to your songs when she, when yeah. she sings them. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and it's absolutely true. We we both get better. Yeah, and uh, it, it's just, but without trying, it wasn't that we tried to do anything. It just happened when it's we happened. played together. That's fabulous. I love that. So tell me a bit about. I mean, you've written one of the biggest songs ever, haven't you? Perfect is is such a. I mean in bars and if you walk down to, if you go out tonight somewhere into a town there's a fair chance if you go into a place with live music that somebody will be singing that song it's one of those classic hits and to tell me about the kind of the story behind that song or how that came to be born into the world what where were you at with that well that was kind of going back a bit uh, before i was living in crickerwood yeah. not in the fordwich road academy of fine popular music around the corner <laughs> And uh, in Exeter, Exeter Road, uh, which was, and the next door neighbour was um, Manuel, you know, as in from Faulty Towers. The uh, <laughs> wasn't Andrew Sachs was the next oh, door wow. neighbour. Okay, think I know. Um, and Bross lived on that same road. What a road! Lived, that's where they grew up. It was like you know, just pretty surreal street. Anyway, but I lived in this like in this bedsit there, and. Um, Anyway, I had this girlfriend, and this is before Jane, and it's not going very well. I remember waking up one morning, and I started to write the song, I don't want half-hearted love affairs, and it was sort of reggae, I don't like this thing. And I didn't quite know what the chorus was of this song, and I had the sort of verse, like the first verse, I think. And it sat there, and then when I went to America, and the story I just told you, yeah. then when I was doing the garden and everything, I had the same situation with a different girlfriend. And <clears throat> this is not right. I've got to get out of here. <clears throat> and um, and I just came up with the chorus. It's got to be oh, you know. And I did this little demo with Jane. She sang into a cassette player. And I had this tape. And I came back to England. And I went back to the Academy of Fine Popular Music, uh, Squat. And I had a little demo of the song there. And I thought, this is really catchy, this song. Yeah. Um, it's very catchy. In fact, once it's in my head, it's in my head all day long. You know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, when we were doing the fairground, when Eddie and I started playing together, we were doing a lot of the, the other songs that that we later on recorded. But they were kind of more sort of slow songs, sort of poetic things. But we needed some more up tempo, and I thought, God, this one perfect. But Eddie probably will think it's too poppy or throwaway, and. Um, I thought I have to present it to her in the right way. So I did reverse psychology and said, I've got this song. I don't think we should do it. I don't okay. think it's really right for us. And she yeah. and I just played it to her and then I just changed the subject. She went, What's wrong? Well, I think that's great. We should do that. Well, no, yeah, really. If you really want to, sort of thing. <laughs> she will she she will never say this. She, if you spoke to her, she will tell you a different story, but I'm telling you my version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so she we we that night we went we paid we were doing a gig at a place called uh the duke of something or another duke of wellington a pub anyway in balls pond road in islington with simon and roy's wedding of i think it was the first gig where the four of us played together all the way through and um we did the set and at the end of it so let's try that new one perfect that we did so we did it eddie sort of knew one of the verses and we sang it and by the end of the song, the whole audience was singing along with it. And I thought, 
it's just like an old song. Yeah. Okay. It's just an old song that yeah, I yeah, yeah. heard yeah. and they all know it. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, that song will go to number one. You know, and the next year, the year later, it was number one. Bloody hell. And, and it did. And um, it was mind-blowing. Actually, it really was mind-blowing. It's, it is, it's, it's just a... It does have that kind of standard feel to it, you know, like a classic standard sort of song. Um, but it kind of felt feels like it kind of just fell out of the air a little bit in the way that you were describing it, you know, just writing a few words and then out popped the chorus. Was it was it quite an easy flowing thing to write? Yeah, I don't really remember writing it really. Amazing. I you know, yeah, just like like most I just write songs what come in that come into a head that are about in my life like a diary. Yeah, yeah. But it, but I've only really recently realized that really, you know, once again it was still, you know, it was from the Bible really. Okay. It's the gospel of Saint Saint Matthew, be ye perfect. Yeah, sure. So it says and, and it, of course it says be ye 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 perfect is basically it is I mean Saint Matthew really should get a co right on that, really. <laughs> a royalty credit. Um yeah. how amazing. That's that's brilliant. How amazing. So when, so you've written with lots of different people as well, lots of uh, you collaborated with lots of different people who um Morrissey, Ringo, even. So, what do you what do you enjoy from the kind of collaboration process of songwriting? Is it kind of? Oh, I guess what do you love and what do you not love about collaborating? Is there, is there anything particular that you get from it or and don't get from it? Well, I never wanted to co-write. I never had any desire to do it. I just I found it's a very personal thing writing songs, and they came out. I was also a bit of a loner walking down the street with songs coming in my head, and I didn't. I just couldn't really understand it. It was just like wearing somebody else's underpants, really, <laughs> writing a song with somebody else. Um, yeah. It was only when the band broke up, um, and I was really devastated. I mean, I'm utterly devastated. Yeah, I'm when sure. The band broke up. It was because yeah. we had been so successful so quickly, and then to yeah. suddenly it was all over. It's like, oh, oh, it was like falling off a cliff. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do. And I didn't want, I, I didn't, I wanted the band, I wanted Eddie. Yeah, to sing my songs, I didn't want anybody else. I, I yeah. still don't. I do know. I never did. Yeah, and um, and it was heartbreaking. And um, when what happened was, uh, how did it happen? Oh yeah, it was Kirsty McCall rang. Um, I got a call from her, and she said, "Oh, I was talking because I'd t I'd done some recording with her before Fairground Attraction." when she first started and uh, she said, oh, I was listening to an old demo the other day and there was a guitar solo on it. And I said to Gavin, Gavin Povey, the keyboard player, who's that playing uh, guitar on that track we did years ago? She says, oh, I think it is Mark Nevin. So what's he up to these days? He's a fairground. He said, yeah, him. I didn't realize that was him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, could you come and play the guitar again? And we're going to do it. We want to re-record this song. So I went down to her house in up to her house in is Ealing. I hadn't seen her for a long time, and and she she played me the song. I said, "That's not me." <laughs> <laughs> oh, in it? I said, "No, I've never heard it in my life before." <laughs> and uh, he says, "Well, would you like to write some songs?" And I thought, "Oh, okay." I don't really write songs. She's and and the way she writes songs, which is a way that she sort of learned from Morrissey and Johnny Marr, was by you just do a tape. Of, of a, like what sounded like a song without singing on it, yeah. and give it to her, and she would just sing lyrics over the top. I thought, well, that's not writing a song, right? That's okay. that's that's yeah. weird. But yeah. so I did this, and she wrote all these songs. And to me, it was so easy because to be the wrestling with the lyric and everything yeah. was the hard, you know. Yeah. But so I just did these tracks, and she sung over the top. And we all these songs that were written between us were written that way so we never once sat in the room and wrote a song together so and then, and then i got called when i was recording with her i was recording walking down madison which is a song she wrote with johnny ma was at um, townhouse studios and i was in there recording this song and the phone rang i said oh this is before mobiles of course you know they said oh mark there's a phone call for you i went to the phone and they, they said oh it's, it's my publisher he said oh i've just got some good news Julio Iglesias has done one of your songs. Went, really? God, bizarre, strange. What, what a bizarre thing. Wow. That's, that's weird. And, and then, then about an hour later, the phone rang. Oh, it's your publisher again. Oh, hello. I said, 
yeah, I just had a call from uh, this guy. He's Morrissey's manager. He wants you to write songs with Morris. I went, really? Wow. I said, oh, that's weird. So <laughs> I said, how? He says, yeah, just send him some music. I said, what? Just send him some music. What? It's the same as Kirsty. Just put some music onto a tape and send it to him. Send it to, address it to Mr. Reynolds. I said, what do you mean? No, Burt Reynolds, in fact. Put Burt Reynolds on the on the tape. And his address in Manchester, because it's because otherwise it, it gets his mail nicked. So you've got to right, disguise right, right. it as to Burt Reynolds. I thought, well, doesn't Burt Reynolds get his? <laughs> get his... <laughs> yeah. like, obviously not. Yeah, uh, maybe this guy sends his letters as Morrissey. But anyway, so I sent this tape off to 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 Burt Reynolds, and um, and then I got a letter, a card about two days later, and it just said a postcard. And it just said perfect. Wow, okay. That. That's funny. Yeah. Send more. So I kept sending these tapes to him to put around. And he kept sending back these letters. I've got them somewhere. They're like really funny letters. How amazing. That's yeah, what after that, that is. Uh very funny letters. And um and I, I and I didn't meet him. I didn't even speak to him. Oh, and really? then one day, no, and then I well, I did eventually, like, you know, yeah. I was walking down the street to put a a jiffy bag addressed to Burt Reynolds in the post box at the, in Camden where I lived then. And Morrissey was just walking past the post box. <laughs> I went, oh, Morrissey. I said, this is for you. And I handed him a jiffy bag. And he just went bright red. And he was there with his glasses on. He was bright red. Really embarrassed. Very shy. Frankie. He said, I'll see you in the studio. I went, okay. And I, then I didn't see him until I, I turned up at Hook End Manor Studios, a residential studio in Oxfordshire. Uh, and I just was driving in, and he was cycling past on his bike with his glasses on and his quiff, looking like that. Stop me if you've heard yeah, this one yeah. before video of the yes, Smith. Yeah. I thought, this is really weird day, you know. <laughs> and I went into the studio, and it was Mark Bedford on bass from Madness and Andy Parisi on drums, and we would sort of rehearse, play the songs through, and then he would come in and sing on top. And that would be the first time I heard the song properly was when we were recording it in the studio. Wow. Is it, new, was, is, is it quite weird to listen back to, to to give your baby away and you know and it comes back with someone else's take well yeah but it didn't really feel like my baby because it just felt so easy i thought this is this not right this is not writing songs okay this is just making up a track yeah sure but this is what they were kirsty and morrissey were doing because this is the way that johnny and Morrissey right. and so that's yeah. how they did it so yeah. I thought well okay I can do that you know and I did loads of it and it was great because I wrote these songs with these amazing people and but I, it never really felt like songwriting to me the way it does when you sit down with a song on your own or with somebody yeah. else and you yeah. battle it out and you know do you do you have a place that you like to write in do you have like a space or a place which is particularly kind of uh good at giving you songs or any was it anywhere and everywhere well, in this room is where I am now. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't really have any of that. It's more, the space is more of a sort of spiritual space of just kind of being in a position of receptivity. Yeah. You know, which I am in anyway all the time. Sure. Um, I, 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 like that, if you put your hands like that, so, you know, you hold them with your palms up, I occupy that position. Yeah. Like I'm on a radio. Yeah. And I just tune to the, where the songs are. Beautiful. They come in. Beautiful. I love that. So you so you do you think songs come from somewhere else then? Do you think they're not of your making? You're kind of bringing them into the world via a kind of <clears throat> spiritual element to it? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. It's just, I don't write any songs, I just find them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's how it feels for me. Like it's uh I've had one came through the other day where I woke up with this music on my head and just grabbed the guitar and it's far too difficult for something. The thing I've, that came to me, if you like, is way too difficult for something that I would write. So it took me like yeah. 10 minutes to try and find how to actually play it because I, I wouldn't be able to do that. And that relationship between um, us as songwriters and, and whatever it is, the unknown, I mean, it is quite a, it's something to dedicate your life to, isn't it? It's such a fascinating, mysterious, beautiful yeah. relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just read an interview with Paul Simon the other day. 
he's got this new uh, sort of mini album out called uh, Seven Psalms. And he said, I just had this dream. And in the dreamer's voice said, you have to write an album called Seven Psalms. It was just literally a voice saying those words to me. So I woke up, I thought, well, I better do that then. <laughs> and, he was, and he starts writing it. And then he goes, then I couldn't get any further. He says, he says so I waited for more information. And I just loved that. I waited that's for more so information. That's so good. And that's it. Yeah. Brilliant. When was the last time you heard someone else's song and it and it kind of blew your head? And do you, can you remember that, or who it was and why? Um, recently, I heard. I must say that I've not. I I like to be able to say that. Uh, but I can't. Oh, I. Well, I can't, well, that's not even a new song. It's a folk song of Bonnie Light Horseman. I really like them, and I love their version of the song Bonnie Light Horseman. But that is. I think it's an old song. That's cool. Um, an old song you've of, heard is good. Yeah, that is lovely, Bonnie Light. Have you heard that, Bonnie Light Horse? I don't know. No, I haven't actually. No. They're very good. Uh, we saw them at Union Chapel. Beautiful oh. singing. Beautiful yeah. singing and lovely guitar playing. Uh, yeah, that the, the, the track, the main track, Bonnie Light Horseman, is really something else. That is something else. I shall check that I out. I can't really think of what... You know, one of the things that I went for a long phase where I didn't do much music, and I and I studied and qualified to be a psychotherapist for about wow. five years. Fantastic. And I and I I thought that I wasn't going to go back to doing music, but not. I thought I'd sort of done it, and then it was kind of through one of Chris Difford's workshops at Pennard, where he, yeah. and he said me he'd always invite me to them because I'd gone to them years ago when he first started doing them. Then I stopped for ages. And um, one of the first people on the list that made me go that made me go back to Pennard was Beth Nilsson Chapman, yeah. And um, her song "Sand and Water" and "Color of Roses," yeah. Those two songs. When my parents died in 1999, my parents died two months apart, yeah. and um, I used to listen to those two songs and three Joni Mitchell songs on this tape round and round and round and round. And so I and I love Beth's songs, and so when she's Chris said, Beth's there. I said, right, I'm coming. Fantastic. Yeah, she's a and brilliant first... Yeah. When, when, you, so... when, you're, when you're writing songs, like you said, where the music, the relationship between the muse, if you like, and they're coming through, is that the same for you with words? Or is the words more of a laborious thing for you? Oh, no, the words, are, I'm really talking about the words really more than anything. Okay. To me, the music, I don't really even really think about the music. The, the words seem, the music seems to be connected to the words. Okay. I find it's I'm always thinking in terms of um finding truth. That's what I think I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. You know that if you, you must have heard that thing is it Michael Angelo as it said, you know, how it said so how do you make all of those some fantastic sculptures? He's oh I don't I just chip away all the stone and find them inside. Uh, I love that. You heard I love that? that? Yes, I have heard it's that. It's like that. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. kind of a yeah, you're looking for the beauty that's there. It it exists already. And you're always looking to find it and uncover it. Mm. And do you write every day with that quest for that beauty? Are you somebody who writes every day or is it as and when yeah. the beauty hits you? I'll go through phases, you know, and sometimes I come and sometimes I'm, I'm always, I'm, I'm always in that frame of mind, but I'm not always thinking about songwriting because I'm, because I am a psychotherapist now as well. Yeah. And that's very similar. It's the yeah. same sort of thing. It's like this and just yeah. talking with somebody and jamming and riffing and yeah. you know creating a new narrative yeah. so it's kind of what i do in both areas of my life as a songwriter and as a psychotherapist i riff and create a new narrative what a fabulous way of putting it i love that i've got a, f a, a fan question here mark um from another great songwriter actually peter james milson his name is but he says how do you keep the word so simple and clear but never simplistic it's a hell of a trick and he says kite flies hill is one of his favorites so that's Pete's question for you there. How do you keep the words so simple and clear, but never simplistic? Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I never, I, I, well, I never try to do anything that I never try to ever be clever. Uh, I never try to, to pretend to be intelligent. I just try to tell the truth as yeah. I as it comes to me. Yeah. And the simple that's all. 
Kite Flies Hill. I mean, that's you know, as I said, when I went to Eddie, mm. that's where where Eddie and I sort of agreed to be a band. And and the song I'd wrote later is when I I just thought, oh, but you want to get the band back together? I just want to get back with Eddie. And so it, the song's written. It's about Eddie, really. You know, you know. I sometimes I wish we would go up to Kite Flies Hill, and one day I'll go up there, and you'll be there again. Beautiful. And um, I'll show you this. You won't be able to hear it on your blog, but you'll be able to see. You'll be able to see it now. And uh, and so about about a week ago, Eddie sent me this. Where is it? Yeah, come on, so turn it. I'm, I'm looking at a WhatsApp thing here to your listeners. I, I'm looking for something. It's on here somewhere. There it is. And so she sent me that. There's there's Eddie there on Kite Flyers Hill oh, for the beautiful. first time in in 35 years. Fantastic. <laughs> I love that. Beautiful. Um, if you were to give advice to people that wanted to write songs or any kind of things you've, I mean, it's pretty clear that from what you're saying about your process, but if you were to give someone some advice as a songwriter or something, a tip or a kind of uh, um, some guidance, what would you offer up? Well, I'd say you, for a start, don't even think that you write any songs. You just receive them yeah. and be grateful and open and just listen to what comes in and just and just obey uh he who sends them yeah. uh you know and and you're just a servant you know i got a song on my last album called i am an, uh, am i the architect and it just says uh me i am a bricky on a building site and as i was packing up my trial and hod last night a passing by inquired is this your place it took a while to register the question on his face. He says, oh, am I the architect? That's what you want to know. Of course I'm not. That's very, of course I'm not. I'm just a bricky, a humble working man. Uh, and though sometimes it's tricky, I do the best I can to understand the plan. That's great. And <laughs> that's it. You know, you've got to be a bricklayer. Mm. Paul Simon, I uh, saw an interview with Paul Simon uh, on uh, Jules Holland a few years ago and Paul, and he had a new album out at the time and, and Jules said, so Paul, can you tell me what is the inspiration behind this new album? And he says, oh, oh there's no inspiration. It's my job. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's what I do. It's what you do. I love that. You turn up. Mm, turn up, listen. You're right. Actually, you just summed up my process as well, actually. I can sit down and write a song but like the job really is to just uh get out the way and just let let that come through it's a very beautiful way of eloquent way of putting it so is that god then do you think for you is that would you go yeah, there with it yeah. that is god yeah that's that yeah that's you know it's it becomes people are terrified of talking about god these days but it's just great it's great lost to them and fear is the enemy of love and uh yeah. if you just uh Get give up fear and uh, let all the good stuff come in. Just hold your hands out in the in that right way, and and everything's there for you if you open the doors to your heart and your mind. And and it's just it's just this bottomless supply of good stuff, you know. And how do what how how do you reckon you let go of fear? Um. What well, you have gone. You 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 just um, well you don't try and run away from it. I mean, you just there's that there used to be that so old self help book in the eighties. Feel the fear and do it anyway. And you and that's you just got to feel it, feel it. Don't run away from it. Burn through it and come out the other side. Don't try and don't numb yourself with alcohol or drugs. Just feel any feelings until they they pass and they do. Like pleasure and pain are fleeting. Yeah, but um. But what is eternal is eternal. And, you know, if you think of the, the word temple, you know, it's in the same root as the word tempo. It's where timelessness is. Mm. And uh, when you leave the tempo of everyday life and enter the temple, you you, you enter into, eternal, into eternity where there's this endlessness. And when you walk in there, 
you're in touch with everything. Every, all the, the money, internet, in, Google is just like baby stuff. This is talking about your infinite wisdom and, and everything is in timelessness, in eternity. Pleasure and pain are, are fleeting. So don't fear them. Beautiful. And just what I needed to hear today as well. That's an amazing <laughs> As uh, someone in recovery, I am uh, all about looking for these kind of answers like that. That's a great, great thing. Um, here's a question for you. Just I ask everybody this question um, just before our hour's up, which is if you could have written any other song, if you could have received another song, lived with it in your head, channeled it, whatever the process is for you or for anyone else, what what song would you have loved to have kind of spent some time with that isn't one of your songs, that's someone else's songs, what song would you have liked to have lived with for a while? Mm. I think uh, there was something that comes to mind as a, just uh, is "Let It Be Me" by the Everly Brothers. Okay. They didn't actually write that song, did they? It's it written by an Italian woman, I think. Okay. Uh, I think it's written by an Italian couple. You know, God bless the day I found you. That one, you know, "Let yeah, It Be Me." Yeah, yeah. Everly Brothers. I think that's just gorgeous. That song. Fantastic. Something so simple and perfect and pure, and, and you know. Yeah. So, Mark, what have you got upcoming in terms of uh, writing or music at the moment? Well, I am actually going to do a gig for the first time in like must be about four years on June eighth at West Hampstead Arts Club in Mill Lane, which is actually just round the corner from Fordwich Road, the Academy of Fine Popular Music. It's literally a two-minute walk from it. So I'm going back to the original place to, to sing there and, and this lovely little club, West Hampstead Arts Club. And I've got great musicians, Ed Blunt and, and Paul Reynolds on piano and double bass. Great, great. And they and I'm very grateful to them because I wasn't planning to do any more shows particularly. And they dragged me out and they've made me rehearse. And uh, it sounded amazing. So I'm very excited to do this. And if uh, anyone listening coming along, go to West Hampstead Arts Club website and get a ticket quickly because it's very small and it'll be sold out and it's going to be great fantastic mark thank you so much for your time i've really enjoyed talking to you and it's um beautiful to hear you speak so eloquently about songwriting and some hilarious stories and uh thank you so much and uh listeners please there's so many you know great mark albums that i've been enjoying listening to over the last uh few days particularly mark a song called show me who you are which is absolutely stunning uh of yours a beautiful song well i I wrote that with uh, David Wilcox. Uh, he, he's a great songwriter from Asheville, Tennessee, not in Nashville, but Asheville. Uh, and it was, that was quite a strange one because, you know, in the song it says, um, um, how's it, that's, uh, all that I asked for is a, is a cardiovascular beep on a screen. And, uh, you know, basically saying, well, I, I'm just glad to be alive. So they, and, you know, just shortly after that, I got really ill, went to hospital, and I literally was living it with the cardiovascular people. Oh, and when I came when I came out, I was nearly dead. Wow. Uh, I was literally I was literally in Royal Free Hospital looking over Kite Flyers Hill. That's wow. a view out of my window. And um, and I came out and. Um, um, yeah. And, and so the, 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 the orchestration on that is done by a great guy. Mm. Uh, Oh God! I can't write a complete blank of his name now. What's his name? I feel terrible. Oh, he's on live as well. What's his name? His orchestration, his arrangement is fantastic, and he sent me this track. He sent me, you know, just to do a guide vocal on, and I was just literally like sitting here, like oh, nearly dying, and so it was. It was like no acting required because I was nearly dead when I sang it. And of course, then when I got better, we said, let's do a new proper vocal. And of course, you, you know how it goes. Yeah. You do the proper vocal. And so the one of one is one on the record is me keeling over. Okay. That's Ni it. Nigel Hopkins. Nigel Hopkins. Fantastic. Nigel Hopkins arranger. What a genius. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal song and phenomenal arrangement and and also a great vocal performance. I was thinking that last night. There's something about that vocal. So that's quite interesting to hear. <laughs> it's, it's barely alive. Thank you, Mark. Have a, thank you very much for your time, mate, and um, have a lovely weekend. All right. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs>